0: okay here we go hello everyone my name is Catherine Barnes and today I am going to be interviewing my friend Enrique Lopetegui who is a music journalist
1: Lopetegui Lopetegui. Lopetegui. wait you say it you say it that's almost as bad as you saying I'm, I'm, I'm telling you I'm from Uruguay and you say oh Paraguay almost as bad
0: so say it properly so I can say it right
1: Enrique Lopetegui
0: Lopetegui okay okay yes. I think that you and my friend Nathan Echevarria need to have a Bosque last name contest to see who has the better Bosque last name
1: no i my, my friend's enemies are my enemies so okay, <laughs> okay. I won't talk to that guy <laughs> okay he had anyways. his chance and he blew it so forget about it.
0: so forget him okay okay <laughs> anyways back to the subject at hand Uh, Enrique is a music journalist. He has written for many, many publications over the years, including the LA Times, the San Antonio Current. Help me out here. What are some of the other um, places where you've written?
1: Billboard, LA Weekly, um, Well, a bunch of Spanish papers, La Opinion. I started in La Opinion in LA, back home in Uruguay also. Uh, New Times, um, The Guardian. Uh, etc et but mostly uh, la times san antonio current and la weekly those I'll are finish. the ones i'm most proud of because Very there's cool. a lot of crap in, you know here and there
0: <laughs> a lot of crap well speaking of crap uh so you're you've got a new book coming out your first book you released last year called ruta alterna which was a compilation of all the articles or most of the articles you had written for the la times in spanish and this new one is going to be a compilation of your articles in English. Can you tell us the title?
1: It's called "Nobody Told Me Nada," which is a phrase in uh, one of my favorite musicians' song called "Nobody uh, Nadie Me Dijo Nada," which means "Nobody Told Me Anything." But within the song, he yells. At one point, he says, Nobody Told Me Nada. You know, a little bit of English in there. And I, I've been toying around with different titles for the book, to, something that expresses what I wanted to say with this book. And I was driving, and then the song started playing. And when I heard Nobody Told Me Nada, it just hit me like, okay, that's it. That's the name of the book. And when you read the book, you understand why nobody told me What? I explained that, that I never expected to be writing in English ever. When I left my home uh, in Uruguay, that was 1984. And all I ever wanted was just to have a little space in a Spanish newspaper in the USA and just do my thing. But for you know those unexpected things in life, uh, I ended up writing in English, uh, which it was great because if you're bilingual, you can be twice as miserable. And, um, but actually, yeah, that kind of like saved me because I was writing both in English and in Spanish. And that's a big help. And so it's called Nobody Told Me Nada. And the subhead is um, Latin Pop, Llama Poop, and Other Unexpected Writings. It's a compilation of not all my work in English, but the the thing that uh, sucks the least and my, my favorite stories, uh, and either for journalistic reasons or for sentimental reasons, I wanted to include that. So it's about 30 or 40% of all my output in English. And huh? it's, uh, it's the years go from 1992 when I started writing for the LA Weekly to 2021, I think January or February. That was the last story I published for The Current here in San Antonio.
0: Awesome. Very cool. So you're from Montevideo and Mm. I'm going to ask you two things. How did you get interested in music and how did you get started writing?
1: Well, music, uh, you know, there was always a lot of music in, in my house. My mother was an opera singer and my brother would, uh, both my mother and my father were opera nuts and, um, and my brother, you know, thanks to him, I learned about the Beatles, uh, the Stones, all the, you know, 60s music. And I immediately was hooked all the whole Woodstock generation, the real Woodstock, not the late, the nineties crap. And, um, and, but then, but also, and my brother was a writer. So I, and my grandfather was a writer. So I grew up with the noise of a typewriter and, uh, and I also like martial arts. So I was a practitioner of our Okinawan style of karate when I was in my early teens. And, and one day I read a story in a community newspaper <coughs> about a cer- certain karate sensei, you know, master. And they were praising him because he could kill a bull with a single punch. And I hated that. And also, I'm an animal lover. So I wrote a letter to the editor in um, uh, that community newspaper and, um, you know, pissed off and bitching about that story. And they published it as as a story instead of a letter. And that's all by Enrique Lopetegui. And I thought, oh my God. And then somebody told me, dude don't you see what happened in here you should get a press card a press credential because that way you can get free records and and you can go to the shows for free and I say okay like I explained that in my intro that when John Lennon saw uh, Elvis Presley and all the screaming girls around him he thought that's a nice job So that's what I thought. That's a nice job. And I started writing and I started publishing and and that's it. And that's how I started. I started writing in Uruguay. And then I came to the USA to visit some family in 81. And I loved it and was Houston in 81. Uh, Of course, I was very young. I I didn't see clear, but, uh, but I loved it. At that time, I loved it. And my plan was to go back to Uruguay, publish for two more years and then come back and see. So when I came back in '84, it took me about two years to to start writing again in Spanish. Yeah.
0: So what made you love it?
1: The music is the music, and my my uh, I combined um, the writing about music allowed me to to be myself, especially about rock and roll, uh, rock in español. Uh, I used. It was just an extension of what I was doing in my private life It was all the time I was um, telling people, and they used to call me, well, my nickname in Uruguay is Kike. Um, people here for some reason spell Kike like kike, you know, and it's Kike, Q-U-I-Q-U-E. That's why you say Kike. I hate it whenever somebody's called Kike with a K, with two Ks. Anyway. And um, so they used to call me Enrique Escucha Esto Lopetegui. Escucha Esto means listen to this, Lopetegui. That was my nickname was listen to this besides Kike because I was always telling everybody, listen to this, listen to this, listen to this. So basically when I started writing and even now, even though I don't write anymore, but uh, the whole point of my writing about music, it was just to scream you know, for the world to hear, you got to listen to this artist or you don't have to listen to this artist. So so that's mainly why, and then, you know, it became your profession and, and, uh, and you just, you know, I love being, I'm a newsroom guy. I love, even though that doesn't exist anymore, uh, but you know, huge, like, you know, all the president's men, you know, the Washington Post, like a million desks and noise everywhere and everybody going nuts. That's my thing. And um, so I loved it, but you know, things have changed even though I still believe in journalism and there's a lot of people doing great work but um, in my personal case since I cover Latin uh, alternative music for me to write again I will have to write about reggaeton and I'm not gonna do that
0: Hmm. why not
1: because it sucks. It's, and, and, and the thing, except for a very few exceptions, like I mentioned in the book, like Volte, Telgo Calderon, Calle um some things of Bad Bunny, but the bulk of reggaeton, I mean, what, you know, some music I don't like, some music I like like everybody else, but what bothers me the most, and it's hard for me to understand why Puerto Rico has, marvelous music and there's a lot of you know all the afro cuban or afro puerto rican rhythms are amazing and and they settle for this uh, i i don't even want to do it i don't want to do i don't want to imitate the reggaeton beat you know what i'm talking about and it's a i i don't see any lyrical or musical excellence anywhere show me a good reggaeton song and i'll go okay i do admit though that reggaeton has improved a lot in terms of production and there's some interesting i just mentioned like bad bunny i think Balbani bunny is a serious artist uh, even though i don't consume consume uh bad bunny but uh, but i heard that his last two albums and i went whoa you know there's some interesting stuff like that but not like rolling stone says i mean they used to give four or five stars to daddy yankee albums come on so yeah, I'm very picky about music and I'm I'm from the Beatles school, so my standard you know is pretty high.
0: Yeah.
1: And yeah. And, and you know, and and come on, haven't they listened to a Grand Combo and all the great uh salsa band and they have Bomba, and they have Plena, and they have this and they have that, and then they end up with reggaeton, please.
0: Okay well so let's go back to so you came to the u.s and you loved it and then you went back to uruguay and published for a couple more years and then you came back and i think you wound up in east texas yes and then from east texas you got to la so how did that shift
1: well um, that's another thing Uh, um, i was the least religious person in my family you know first of all uruguay is the most atheistic country in latin america and probably the world and the catholic church doesn't have the power that has in other uh places and uh and the only reason why i i I don't even know if i was ever baptized i don't think so i don't i don't know nobody ever told me we didn't talk about that and uh but i took my first communion because I wanted to play a soccer tournament in the church where my friends used to go but the only way I could participate if I took first communion so I had to go through uh, I don't even know how to pronounce catechism uh,
0: catechism
1: catechism catechism yeah catechism in spanish so I did it and when I finally took my first communion they discontinued the soccer tournaments mm. so so that really stunk and um but when I came to USA to, to live, and remember this was 1984, February of 1984, that was the year where Reagan and Bush were going for the reelection against Mondale Ferraro. And I was in East Texas, it wasn't Houston, it was East Texas, you know, it was like uh, 20,000 population and like 137 churches, it was insane and 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 that's for the first time i was it was like a train coming head-on to me of the you know the racism and i saw how that was when the first time in my life i saw a mexican i didn't know what a mexican was and uh, and the way they would treat them and everybody would ask me the same thing it was like everybody was the same person how do you like america like if i was coming from hell or something and uh, and i and i was all alone i was working and my my and had a business so i went through a transformation i went i wanted i needed jesus and i started reading the bible but and when i would read the bible i would you know i fell in love with jesus but then i would go to a church and i didn't see that jesus that i saw in the bible i didn't see him in the church so i started developing on the one hand a, a big spiritual thirst and on the other hand, I became really interested in politics because I, I could not understand uh, the things that were happening. And, and you know, that was a, the, the AIDS situation and nobody gave a crap. Uh, and um, people were dying left and right. And uh, there was homophobia. And so it was like a big awakening. I began reading about Che Guevara and, and all that. And uh, and while I was, I went to mosques, uh, synagogues, churches, all denominations, You and then I met a Hare Krishna. And for the first time in my life, because in, in, when I was even back in Hawaii, I would ask questions and they would, would tell me, well, that's one of the big mysteries of the church. We're not ready to understand, blah, blah, blah. But for the first time in my life, uh, this Hare Krishna gave me three books, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, one magazine called Back to Godhead and the science of serialization and it just completely blew me away and I was already a vegetarian we talked about everything it was my first intelligent conversation I had with somebody in the USA and and I fell in love with the Sanskrit with the chanting and then I went to visit the Dallas Temple which was the closest one and um, and 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 I never left. I went there and and that's it. I stayed at the temple for three months. And then I went to LA 1980. It was August 1985. I went to Los Angeles to know the temple in in LA just for a week. And then I will come back to, to Texas. And when I met LA, I said, forget it. I'm not going back to Texas. And I stayed in LA for 19 years. So what happened was that I I, I became initiated, uh, you know, brahmachari, celibate student, you know, preaching, getting up at four in the morning, uh, meeting at the temple at 4.30 in the morning, like that, four and a half years. But in 1986, as I was walking on Venice Boulevard, chanting my rounds, you know, I started... (laughs) There was the, the, the La Opinion newsstands, the Spanish paper. So I got La Opinion and I wanted to write again. But, you know, I, I was a devotee. I, I cannot go back to journalism and like that. And besides, there was no way that I could. I mean, I mean the quality was pretty poor of the Spanish journalism. It's completely different of, to what I was used to. But then one day I saw uh, like a a supplement, like a little magazine on a Sunday called La Comunidad, The Community. And it was like a cultural thing. And I said, oh, I could write here. So one day I just sat down and wrote something about Pat Metheny. It was horrible. It was a horrible story. Uh, I remember the title I'm going to say because it's so embarrassing. That's the only embarrassing thing that I'm going to say. But it was Pat Metheny. that was in Spanish, I'm translating, but it says, Pat Metheny, the artist that finds his inspiration in Latin America, because that was his Brazilian era, You know, when he recorded with Pedro Snar and some other uh, Brazilian. It was Lyle Mays also, but he was with Pedro Snar also. and, And there was a lot of Brazilian touches in his music, great albums. And they published it and they published a bunch. And then one day I realized, dude, I called the guy, hey, are you going to pay me for this or what so so oh I thought you were getting paid no I don't so he gave me the phone number so that's how I was getting paid and then in 1988 I got married and that's when I needed to go out and and get a job so I got a job as a translator and writer uh, El Diario de Los Angeles which competed with La Opinion I was there for for a year then Noticias del Mundo then Vida Nueva which was the magazine of the archdiocese of la and then in 1992 um they called me from the la weekly and started writing for them and that was november 1992 and then in around february or march of 93 they called me from the la times which was great because i used to read when i was in Uruguay, (coughs) and i was um studying english at um at a place where they taught the most important place in Uruguay to learn American English uh, I used to read the LA Times in microfilm or my, microfilm uh, and I used to read the music section and it was mostly by Robert Hilburn Bob Hilburn mm-hmm. and uh, and he ended up being my editor you know and he founded a amusing that I used to read him in microfilm so that was great I was five years with the with the times and um, and, you know, the rest is history, but. Uh,
0: so I know you got some advice from Robert Hilburn that you are very proud of. Can you share that advice with us?
1: Yeah, yeah, that don't become friends with the people you write about. Don't take photos with them. Don't take, the only thing you accept from a record label is the, when that album comes out and then a couple of tickets for the concert uh, one for you, one for the photographer, or maybe you can have a guest, whatever. Don't go backstage unless you um, you're doing a story, like you're interviewing somebody, you know, behind the scenes or whatever. But you know, that's something nobody does. Everybody takes photos with the artist. I, I find that horrible because you show me somebody who took a photo with the artist, and I'll show you a positive story about that artist. Everybody's good, everybody's great. You know, if you get too close to the artist, uh, it's really difficult because we're human beings. It's very difficult to remain objective. But, you know, even people that I admire, people that I look up to, they, everybody takes photos with the artists. And I remember that in, when was it, 1990? Three, I don't remember, somewhere early to mid-90s, this uh, major rocker from Argentina, um, Fito Paez, he presented his album Circo Beat in Mexico City, and they were flying over, writers from all over the world. I was the only one who didn't take the trip, the only one. They would pay you for the hotel, they would pay you for the plane ticket, and, uh, and I even asked, that's when, when the guy told me, uh, um, uh, Bob Hilburn told me, um, no man, and there was no budget for the paper to send me, but uh, so I didn't go and, and I understood it and, and I stood by it and that was great. The only time, the only time I accepted a trip was for a very personal reason that I I knew I was blowing it in terms of journalistic ethics. There was a, remember how you were in San Diego, but um, there was a point in 1993, for the first time in American history, uh, a Spanish language radio station became number one in the whole country that was KLAX, I think it was the name, La X, which was a, um, a radio that played banda music from the north of Mexico. And uh, so that was one of my first stories, actually. It was, uh, we shared bylines with Elena Humano uh, a wonderful writer that was at the Times. And actually she wrote most of the story. That was my very first assignment. I had to cover a big uh, uh, concert uh, somewhere in LA outside, like an outdoor concert with banda. It was packed. And uh, and I had to talk to Don Cruz Lizárraga, who was the director of um, Banda El Recodo, which is the, the, the banda of bandas. You know, it's the biggest banda of all and he greeted me with um with a collection of all his CDs and all his tapes you know and he invited me to his ranch in 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 Sinaloa um and uh, and he kept writing me and then i you know i was very busy and like so many things in my life i neg- that i neglected i neglected him i never you know i never went there but and um Um, But I could have asked the time so they send me there whatever. But I never went there. And one day I'm walking on a supermarket in Echo Park in LA, and I see one of those Mexican magazines, Don Cruz Lizarraga, dead. You know, and I felt so bad. I felt so bad. So years later, 10 years later, exactly. Van El Recolo was remembering Don Cruz Lizarragan. That's that was the only time that I cannot say no to this. So I went there to pay my respects. But that was it. That was it. I never took any favors or any plain tickets. I did accept when I was a member of the Grammy Academy. I would go to the meetings, but um they flung me over, you know, I was doing a service for them. That was okay. But um anyway, that's it.
0: Right. And that, you know, speaking of the Grammys, so I think you were part of like the first ever Latin Grammys that happened.
1: I, I wrote the official program books of the first three Latin Grammys. I think it was 99, 2000, 2001, or 2000 to 2003. I think it was from 99 to, I don't remember the years, but yeah, I wrote and translated and edited and everything, the first three Latin Grammys.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. I remember watching that in Spanish class when that happened for the first time. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. kind
1: of cool. Yeah, so. Yeah, that was nice. That was very nice. And I'm a big supporter of the Academy. And when people bitch about the, the the, results and the winners, hey, become a member of the Academy, especially if you can be a voting member, if you're a musician or an engineer. But when people bitch, that's ridiculous. How can you... How can you choose best rock album, such and such, you know? Oh, uh, are you a member? No, I would never become a member of that shit. Okay, then don't bitch, man. If you don't vote, don't complain. <laughs> but I was there, I was there and I was inside. And, um, and I can tell you, it's, it's transparent in the sense that, that, of course, the votes are secret, but uh, hey, if people don't vote, you know, it's what happened with Uruguay. Uruguay has great musicians, but there's very few of us. It's only a population of a little over 3 million people. And a lot of people, are suspicious. they don't want to become members, so they don't have too many votes. And usually it's in Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, uh, that uh, Puerto Rico that dominates. And then every once in a while, somebody from another country. And, you know, a couple, two or three Uruguayans have won. But uh, but I have no problem. I do. I, I in fact, there's a story in the when when they decide changes in the categories. And usually they they screw it up because there's two organizations. There's NARAS, which is like the Grammys. the are the Grammys in English, and then there's Latas, which is the Latin Academy. But NARAS calls the shot, even though LARAS is supposed to be independent. But you know they had to adapt to decisions made by 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 NARAS and sometimes they screw up. So that's why I wrote a story called The Incredible Shrinking Grammy, uh, which deals with the time when they lumped in together uh, the rock and the urban or hip hop reggaeton categories together. So you have uh, people like you know I don't know uh, Café Cuba or Mana or uh, Um, maldita vecindad competing in the same category with people like daddy yankee or some other unnameable reggaetoneros and uh which is pretty ridiculous and that happens you know on a regular basis. and then they change it back you know it's kind of like a mess but you know it's not it's not easy. No, there's a lot of music, but I but I do support it because just the fact that I saw with my own eyes walking by me, Mercedes Sosa holding a Grammy or Caetano Veloso or all the Brazilian greats that if it wasn't for the Latin Grammys, uh, they wouldn't never have had that recognition that they have in the United States, even though in the rest of the world they were already huge, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: So how do you decide what you're going to write about or has that changed? Like when you work at different places or for different, well, places? there's
1: two things. There's the things that I, I, I base I, my, I always base my career on calendar because on the calendar or the picture, what, what's who's coming to town uh, or what records come out, you know, what's happening right at the moment. And uh, there has to be a reason. Usually when I do a story is always because you know, the, the paper comes out on Wednesday. Who, who plays on Saturday here in the city that you're in? So that's one thing. And sometimes I get assignments. For example, that the thing that I hated about the times was that every Saturday night, I had to go to Universal Amphitheater theater to hear one of these crooners, Camilo Sesto, Julio Iglesias, whatever. And then the same night, there were some dynamite Rock bands from Mexico, Argentina, or Spain, or something like that. And I had to miss it because I had to go see Camilo Sesto, stuff like that. That's one of the reasons I quit after five years because, you know, I was sick of that. But (laughs) uh, the ideal thing would have been to have someone to go there and then I would go to the cool stuff. But, you know, there was no budget. And um, and that's it. Uh, Now, the current is different because i i i I called the shots um here in San Antonio and I decided to write it was a combination of local stuff and touring stuff and um so so yeah, you know it's a combination of what the assignments that you get but also the things that you pitch and most of the time you know they would say yes, but sometimes you know there was no interest, so that's how it works.
0: How did you get from LA to San Antonio?
1: Well, in late, in the second half of 2003, I get a call from Leila Cobo, who is the Latin Bureau chief, I think she still is, uh, of um, Billboard magazine. She used to be the copy editor in Nuestro Tiempo when I was writing my Ruta Alterna columns and uh, very talented Colombian um journalist and um and she told me that there's a, a, a spanish newspaper about to open in in texas and she recommended me to be the music editor and i said no way man I'm, i don't want to deal with spanish publications in the usa anymore no no but this is serious blah blah blah, blah, blah. yeah yeah no 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 but whatever she's just giving my number and she said, you know, just talk to them. Okay, okay, fine. Give me my number, but I don't see it. So I got a call a few couple of months later. I got a call from Jonathan Friedland, who was part of the team that won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, he was at the Washington Post before Rumbo, of course. Um, Rumbo is the name of that Spanish newspaper in Texas. And uh, he and his team had won a... Pulitzer Prize for one of those hurricanes that happened, um, in the South, I think, and they had covered the hurricanes and they never stopped the distribution. I don't know, something like related to the hurricane. So he was a very cool guy. And I, I, we had a conversation he impressed me. He was a very cool, coolest dude. And, um, but I made him an offer, an offer, uh, Insane! I, I asked for the stars and the moon and I'm hoping for him to say no because I didn't want to go back to Texas. And they say yes. So, so that's it. So I came back and it was great. It only lasted for four years, but it was a great newspaper. And, um, and then after Grumbo, I started writing for the local alternative weekly, The Current. And that was great. I was there from 2008 until 2014. I was doing both music and film, which is completely insane. I love film, but you know, you need a film editor and a music editor, but Hey, this is the post internet era. You know, there's no money for everything. There's no money for photographers. There's no money for proofreaders. You have to do everything. <clears throat> and uh, so that's it. And then, after I always say, I don't live in Texas, I live in San Antonio. San Antonio and Austin are two different things, even though in Austin has Greg Abbott, the governor, living there, which is a disgrace. And, um, but you know, Austin and San Antonio are different, you know, very liberal, always the Democrats win here. And so it's, and also San Antonio, there's no traffic, everything is cheap. I love San Antonio and I love the Spurs. And I love Manu Ginobili. So as long as the Spurs are in San Antonio, and now Manu works for the Spurs, so I'm going to stay in San Antonio.
0: All right. I think that's some solid logic. So I know that after you had been writing for The Times, there came a point at which you were like, okay, I'm done. And you wound up going to India. Can you tell us that story?
1: Well, yeah. Uh, L.A. is great. I love L.A. You know, but but LA takes its toll on your body. You spend most of your life inside a car and driving is insane. And uh, there's a lot of temptations, you know. So, you know, after a while at, at the Times, you know, I succumbed to some temptations. So it was rough. Uh, I had so many deadlines. I was writing for the Weekly, the Times, Billboard, the Spanish side, all at the same time. And there was, it was nonstop. And, and after three years, I wanted to quit. I just couldn't do it anymore. And somebody wisely told me, don't quit after three years, quit after five years. And that's exactly what I did. But after five years, in 1998, I thought I was going to die. Really, literally, I thought I was going to die. And uh, so I just took off. I went, I didn't want to die in LA. I went to Vrindavan, India, land of Krishna, and uh, uh, between 1986, between 1985 and 1998, 1985 through 1998, I've been reading about this magical place called Vrindavan, India. And I said, that's the place. And If I'm going to leave my body, that's the place. So I went uh, to Vrindavan, and as soon as the plane landed in New Delhi, because I had to drive south four hours to get to Grindavan. Immediately something happened. It was like, whoa, I mean, I mean in India. And you know, some people go to India to search for the light or to, and then they come back completely disappointed because India is not a place you go with a passport. You need spiritual vision to understand India. India is a very complex place. It's a land of contrasts. And uh, but I went to real India, meaning I'm sounding like Sarah Palin now. The villages, the city in Ind- the cities from India are hellish, but the villages are the most magical thing. And, and it was great for me because as soon as I started going to India, I started writing again and I got healthy. The devotees took care of me. And um, so that's, it was like, I knew exactly what to do when I came back. I said, hey, do, you don't want to write anymore, don't write anymore. And then whenever you feel like writing, it'll come back to you. If you're supposed to write, you'll write. So that's exactly what I did. And when I came back, I started writing again. And, um, and then I went back to India two more times. Uh, the last time was in 2007, uh, when I went to take my mother's ashes to the Jamuna River. And, uh, but now I'm sick of India because it's just too many monkeys, man. You cannot even walk because the, the Westerners like me, they're building apartments like Western style apartments with 24 hour generators and like that. And they're taking up land from the monkeys. So the monkeys don't have where to go. So you have to walk around in India with a stick in your hand, because these are not cute monkeys, these are monkeys that can eat your feet. And, uh, and they jump from trees and take your food and your glasses and eat your shoes and stuff. So, so that was it. That was my, my story with India. But I always say that India saved my life. And, um, and still to this day, my favorite food is Indian food. And I have fond memories of India minus the monkeys
0: so you had your monkey issues in India but then you came back to the U.S. and you wound up in a, another kind of spiritual oh, situation the transition,
1: yeah <laughs> when I came back that's right when I came back uh, I was still in my India trip but at the same time I wanted to write and I didn't know where to write, how to write, or exactly how to do this. So I I needed to, I, I came back from India too soon, and I felt that I needed to go back to something similar to India, because India is a state of mind, you know? So no matter where you are, you can be in India. So I went to, after living in the LA temple for four and a half years, it was too close to a lot of temptations, And uh, so I wanted to go somewhere remote. So I went to Spanish Fork, Utah, um, where they have a beautiful temple I helped build, like help build, carrying stuff around, you know, uh, beautiful temple in Spanish Fork, Utah, where they have a llama farm, hence the llama poop thing. And, um, And that, if you see the cover of my book, that those spots like like there's some stuff going on it's supposed to be red okay it's not brown plus i don't want you to think that's the llama poop is, is that color on my the the book cover that's blood and the reason why i added blood is because all the work that i done you know and, and i'm suspect all most writers go through this you know it's blood sweat and tears you know because it's like Dorothy Parker said, you know, I hate writing, but I love having written. I think it's a marvelous uh, phrase. And uh, so I needed some kind of blood on the cover. So, yeah, so I was there and I was, uh, again, living a monastic life and cleaning up after the llamas. They shit a lot, man. And plus, you know, I love animals, but those llamas, it's not like dogs that like you call them and they come. They don't give a shit. They're in their own world and then sometimes they spit you and you know, not not fun. Their llamas are not fun. And you know, it's like like George Carlin used to say that chicken are decent people. Well, llamas ain't.
0: Llamas are not fun. I think that's gonna be my number one quote from this interview
1: llamas are not fun. that's right llamas fine. are not fun no fun
0: so i was so, curious about and then
1: well but then i was there for six months or okay. eight months i remember and then i went back to la and i did some pr and then little by little i started running again and um and then in 2004 that's when i i'm talking about uh, 2000, What was that? That was a year 2000, like that. And then I was writing again. I was doing some PR. I did PR for Ruben Blades and other people. And um, then, then 2004, that's when I came to San Antonio. And it was because of the pandemic that I decided to compile. I had enough time to compile my spanish work for ruta alterna and now finally i compile. i got all the rights to my work in in the times and and that's it and there's a book and I, I after this i don't know i don't know because i really i i can't just sit in front of a computer and write i i enjoy not having deadlines and having time to read and and listen to music and watch films, you know, play with my daughter. And uh, so the way I earn my living now is I'm a court interpreter, which is the most boring thing you can think of, but it pays well and you work very few hours, very flexible. And if somebody, if something pisses me off too much, I write again and, and if I love something, too much I'll sit down and write but that doesn't happen too often
0: didn't you recently work on a documentary film along with your wife so you've been busy working on that as well
1: oh yes um the first assignment I had when I came to San Antonio uh was a conjunto shootout which is something very common here in San Antonio the the conjunto accordionist you know, San Antonio is the birthplace of conjunto music, you know, it's the root of Tejano music. Tejano music I don't like, but conjunto I love. It's uh, it's like, uh, I love Norteña music from Mexico, and the lyrics of Norteña music are excellent, but conjunto music is like Norteña on steroids, and it's, it's like rock and roll, I don't know how to explain it. And um, so the first assignment I saw in one of those conjuntos you was this blind kid called Juanito Castillo, who's, a, he was 17 when I found him. And he was a complete genius. He is a complete genius. And uh, so me and my wife, uh, it's a local artist called Guillermina Zavala from Argentina. We decided to follow him for 12 years. We've been following him around and we finally, Um, finished the movie we presented it at a special screening at the local Cine Festival annual film festival it's the oldest Latino film festival in the USA and uh, it was great sold out and people loved it but you know before we go on with the movie we need to finalize some legal aspects which is very complicated and I don't know I hope before I die we can figure it out the movie is called Juanito's Lab and you can see uh, if you go to Vimeo you go to Juanito's Lab the final stretch and you'll be able to see some kind of trailer about the movie or Juanito's Lab and Vimeo and you'll see the trailer there's a couple of videos about the movie so yeah we're excited about that but you know I didn't know making a movie was so difficult in fact, one of the book, one of the chapters in my new book is a long conversation. It was a one-hour conversation with Rob Trujillo, the mm-hmm. basis for Metallica. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talk about the movie that he made about Jacob Pastorius. And then, you know, the guy is rich. And we were talking about half of the interview, he's talking about the, the music rights. And it's complicated, you know? It's complicated. So, you know, we'll see.
0: Well, it's nice to know that there are some musicians getting paid somewhere, but it's a bummer that it's holding up your movie.
1: Oh, oh yeah, totally. So, totally, you know,
0: yeah. And speaking of that interview with Rob Trujillo, there was another thing in there that I wanted to ask you about, which is um, he said to you you, you, you were saying, oh, it's easier to make an album than it is to make a movie. And Rob Trujillo says, oh, yeah, well, you're you're a musician, so you get that. So, you also released an album um, a few years back. Can you tell us about that?
1: Well, yeah. Well, if you go to my Twitter account, which is uh, E Lopetegui, E L O P E T E G U I, it says that I'm considering myself an amateur recording artist.
0: Semi amateur. That's what you put semi amateur because
1: i am selling the album yeah so i'm semi amateur but, but you know really i'm an amateur musician I'm, in fact i don't i don't even co- co- consider myself a writer because a writer writes and i'm not writing anything i wrote a lot of stuff but i'm not writing anything so um, I used to. I, I always play. I grew up in Uruguay with the candombe drums, I always loved the candombe rhythm, the Afro-Uruguayan rhythm. So the candombe is played with three drums. I play one of those drums, the chico drum, and um, and then, I, but I also love the bass. Whenever you know people hum songs, I never hum songs. Sometimes I sing songs, or instead of humming the melody, I hum the bass line uh you know i'm always doing like that i'm following i'm listening to a song and i'm following the bass so i think i'm a natural bassist so i started playing bass i try to learn take class but the thing we if you're not gonna practice you will never learn no matter how many classes you take you need to practice and study and i never had the time to do that so i was playing bass badly but for some mysterious reason when i came to san antonio and the first two, three months in San Antonio was by myself, uh, my wife stayed in LA. I wanted to check it out first before making her move. And uh, and those three months in San Antonio, <clears throat> one day I woke up in the middle of the night, 3 a.m. in the morning uh, with a song in my head. So I grabbed the bass and started playing the bass. Have I ever told you this story? Nope. Okay. Uh, oh, it's a great story. Anyway. Um and I plugged in the bass and I started playing it but I needed a guitar. The pr- there were two problems. The so one I didn't have a guitar and the other problem was I never played guitar in my life. So I what do I do 3 in the morning? Where do I get a guitar? So I call I remember that Walmart was open 24 hours. So I call Walmart. Do you have guitars? Yes. New guitars? Yes, how much? $80. 80 bucks. That's it? Yes. Okay, I'm going. So I went there three in the morning, I got a guitar. I had no clue how to tune it up. I just thought, you know, maybe it's like this, whatever. So I started playing two chords. You know, I, I didn't know what a chord was or anything, but, but if it sounded, because there, I have two things. I have good ear and I have good rhythm. Those are my only, and I think I can sing or I used to sing well because of my ear and because of my mother. And I'm good at harmonies. I always love harmonies. <clears throat> so um, so I started playing two chords. And I realized those chords were the same chords as uh, Breathe, the opening track in Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. And I thought, dude, three in the morning, the least you can do is get those two chords and at least play it a candombe rhythm so I, to, I took those two chords and I came up with a song that night called pantalon that was my very first song so fast forward 11 years later uh, 2015 and I had a bunch of ideas and a bunch of songs like 60 like maybe 20 30 songs and 60 70 ideas so little by little, I chose eight approximately and I recorded an album of demos. It's called Enrique Lopetegui Defectos Espe- no, Lopetegui Defectos Especiales or Special Defects, Demos 2005, 2009, something like that. Or yeah, something like that. I don't even remember. So yeah, you can find that uh, Lopetegui Defectos Especiales. Uh, it's everywhere like uh itunes uh spotify whatever so yeah and i'm very proud of those are the two best things i've done in my life that i'm most impressed because after that i couldn't do anything else my daughter and my album those are the two things i'm most proud of and now these two books but um i don't know i like my album
0: i like it too it's uh it's i i like that you were doing like you you were saying that you were teaching the texas drummer how to play the uruguayan rhythms and i actually think that's kind of cool
1: yeah but they couldn't in fact the only one who could play condombe on drums was juanito juanito castillo the subject of my documentary but uh but it's a difficult rhythm to play unless you're a very good musician or you grew up in Uruguay or maybe Argentina. But uh, without a doubt, there's tango in both Argentina and Uruguay, but Buenos Aires is the capital of tango. And there's candombe in both Argentina and Uruguay, but Montevideo is the capital of candombe. And the best candombe drummers in the world by far are in Uruguay.
0: And you got to play with one of those groups at one point,
1: didn't you? Yes. Yes. In 2005, I went to Uruguay to do a story about Las Llamadas, which is the annual uh, candombe celebration. All the comparsas get together and and parade for like 12 blocks. Um, Each comparsa with up to 78 drums. So you can imagine how that sounds. But I didn't want to do like a tourist story. I wanted to do a story from within i wanted to play drums in inside one of those groups so i called Jaime ross the uruguayan musician and told him the idea and i asked him if he could connect me with one and he connected me with c1080 c1080 because 1080 is the address of the conventillo the 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 most important uh, place where all the, the best drummers lived in Uruguay, then they was demolished later on. But um, C1080 is considered the, 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 the most important candombe uh, comparsa in Uruguay. So I had to do three auditions, I passed. And when I was ready, my, I was already, my face was painted and I had the, the custom in my hand ready to, to go and to change, and to, to play. And I fell downstairs, and I broke my left hand, which is mm. a very important hand for Candombe, so I couldn't go, so I walked with them instead, and I did the story, and that's great. Maybe that's my next book. I'd like to compile the stuff in Spanish that I did in San Antonio for Rumbo, because there's some interesting stuff in there. I don't know, I had to re- re- reread it first to make sure that it's at least, Adequate.
0: So, how would you say that being Uruguayan has sort of influenced and impacted the work that you've done here in the United States?
1: What they always said, different editors, because you know, let's face it, you're as good as what your editor thinks of you. Um, And uh, what they always there's two things I always say is passion, my passion, and we're fiery people. You know, Uruguay is, is is a small country, very small country. It's a poor country, and we have more international cups in soccer than any country in the world. Just count them. We have 19. Argentina, Brazil are behind us. Argentina won. They have like 10 times the population, and they won 15 Copa Americas. We won 15 Copa Americas. We have three World Cups. Uh, Four, I'm sorry, four, not World Cup. We have two World Cups and four World Championships because the Olympic Games in 24 and 28 were considered the World Championship before the the first World Cup in 1930 and 1950, blah, blah, blah. So what I'm trying to say with this is that Uruguayans are famous for being, I don't know if this is the right word, overachieving and never wanting to lose and and just running until the very last minute, even if you're losing, never giving up, and we're half Italian, half Spanish. Uh you know, I'm Basque, half Basque, half Italian, so I'm very stubborn and uh. And 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 what but also they talk about oh Enrique, you have a unique voice. Everybody has a unique voice, but my voice here is more unique because I'm the advantage that I had when talking about Latin music is that I know the about Latin music, what everybody knows, you know, the mainstream Latin music. But because I live in LA for 19 years, I was very well versed with what was happening in Mexico. Uh, not only in terms of music, but in terms of film, in terms of uh, sports, etc., But I also had a long baggage of stuff that I learned, you know, Uruguay is next to Argentina and next to Brazil. So I grew up listening to a lot of different sounds. So I uh, usually, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, you know about what's happening in the North. And if you stay in South America, you know what's happening in South America. So, because I was in both places, you know, I, um, I spent more than half of my life in the USA, but living in LA means that you live in a lot of different places at the same time. So, so that's a combination. It's just my, but I would say uh, the, the, the passionate nature of the Uruguayan, uh, I was a workaholic. I don't know, that's, I learned that, but I I learned the hustling, I learned it in Uruguay, but the work ethics, I learned it in the USA. You know, like, you know, if you work from nine to five, you need to start typing at nine. You know, and if your lunch break is 30 minutes or one hour, you better be back in one hour. That I learned here. You know, us in Latin America, at least in Uruguay, I remember one day I went to Argentina and meet my friends at the local daily newspaper uh, okay let's have lunch yeah sure we want to have lunch uh, two three hours you know and I, do, I said come on man we need to go back man like, oh it's okay it's okay and that remind me of, of India a little bit because when, in, when you're in India you know the Indian scriptures they're, they're not chronological they jump it's like a Quentin Tarantino movie you know uh, like Pulp Fiction, that you go back and forth, back and forth, and, and uh, you know, you read about the, the, the world's creation, and then in the next page, they're talking about 5,000 years later. <clears throat> so um, in India, they tell you, okay, I'll see you at 4. That means any time between 4 and 7, basically. So if you ever deal with Indians and they tell you a specific time you make sure you tell them this is american time not indian time so and i'm sorry this sounds insensitive but come on guys we are like latinos we're not we have a lot of great qualities but punctuality is not one of them Mm. especially uruguayans uruguayans ugh. Jesus Christ, I work with people from all over. I did stories, photographers, musicians, rehearsals, people from all over the country. Every time I try to do something with the Uruguayan in the USA, I get so frustrated because either they don't show up or they show up unprepared, I don't know, man. So that's something I learned here in America because I and I, I remember even when I was here in, in San Antonio and the LA Times, wherever, I would see the reporters for hours, they wouldn't leave their desks hours. And they were typing, typing, typing and making phone calls and time and they wouldn't leave, you know? And I would take a smoking break every hour or every two hours. And that was too much. I felt guilty about it because they would never leave the chair. And that's a great thing about America and how Americans work. And you guys take it for granted, but I think that's a great quality and it helped me a lot because I had to get rid of a lot of bad qualities I had and, and become more disciplined and serious, you know? So thank you, America.
0: It's <laughs> <That's> interesting <laughs> that you say that. Yeah, I think a lot of folks um, nowadays are seeing that as a, a bad quality of capitalism. So it's very interesting to hear your perspective on that.
1: Yeah, well, no, I believe, um, um, you know, I think with talent alone, and I'm not saying that I'm talented, but I, I don't believe that with talent alone, that that's not enough you need a lot more I don't believe I don't buy that crap about the whole oh, the American dream but what I do believe is that in at least in this country because sometimes if you're in the you know you either you're lucky or you're not and and there's places that no matter how hard you work the, the, the opportunities are not there and everything is much more difficult here I'm not, I don't believe that you necessarily achieve all your dreams. Whatever you want to do, you will be able to do it. That's, I think that's very offensive because that means that if you didn't make it, that, that you're useless, that you said you didn't work hard enough. There's always people who are working very hard. And, uh, and, you know, you go to Harvard Law School, not everybody becomes a lawyer or those who become a lawyer, not everybody becomes a successful lawyer or a rich lawyer it's it's a lot of factors karma is it's a combination of a lot of things what i do believe at least in my personal experience <clears throat> that in this country if you organize yourself if you get disciplined and you have a clear goal and you take certain steps you will be much closer to that goal that than you would be if you didn't do that and even if it's not exactly the goal that you wanted, maybe some something different, equally better, if not better. You know, and um, <clears throat> you know, in my most successful times when I was making more money, it was a, you know, I was making very good money in LA at some point, but I was a mess as a human being. I was a complete, it was, I wasn't, you know, I was not there when my father died. I barely made it for my mother's passing and uh, I only took care of my profession, you know? And um, <clears throat> and then at times in my life when I was completely organized, was a better writer or, you know, things weren't happening. So who knows? But I do believe that every time, what doesn't change is that every time, like for example, these books or, or the album, when I really wanted something and I organize and I take certain steps and I be patient, things happen or I'm very close to it happening. So right now, for example, I'm at the stage of the book. um, It took me blood, sweat and tears again for this book. There was a point where I had everything ready, but it was the time to upload the book because, you know, I'm self-publishing and you work with a graphic designer that sometimes takes longer than he's supposed to take or if you want to do it by yourself you don't know if you're gonna be able to do it and and there's a lot of stress like i'm sure you go crazy when you prepare your shows uh and you do a live show that's even more difficult it's great and you have to memorize uh an incredible insane amount of stuff, you know, I have time to think and rewrite and do this and do that. So I have my comedians, I don't know how they do it. Um, but, uh, and plus you have to play, not only memorize, but you had to sing and you had to play. Uh, anyways, so all, my respects to you. <clears throat> so
0: we're coming to the end of our time, but before we wrap up, there's one question I have to ask you that I've wanted to ask you for a really long time. And that is... You okay, just be about, careful
1: what you ask. Be careful well, what you ask. You,
0: so you just, you um, you talked about Uruguayans are very fiery people who have a lot of uh, World Cup trophies. And I've I've noticed that you really don't like it when people make fun of Luis Suarez. And I oh. wanted to know why.
1: Because he's a hero he's our hero he's he's our he emulated self emulated. self
0: emulated.
1: Uh, yes in the world cup he died so that we could live okay we're playing against ghana um he first of all before ghana before the ghana game i'm talking about the world cup in 2010 Uh, he scored both goals I mean he scored the first goal against South Korea in the um, in the round of 16 I think it was then South Korea tied the game and we were going it was a tough game and and then he scored the second goal so he took us to the run of eight against Ghana. And we were going against Ghana in the... Uh, Ghana was the last surviving African team in that World Cup, which took place in Africa. So 90,000 people in the stadium were rooting for Ghana. And Ghana had a wonderful team. Ghana had a wonderful And for the first time in that World Cup, we, um, we were losing, we lost the first half, 1-0. Then we tied the game, and then we had to go to overtime. In the second, one minute before the end of overtime, we were going to penalties. The referee um, calls a foul, an inexistent foul. There was no foul in favor of Ghana. So they take the foul and there were two Ghana players in offside So, twice they shoot the ball with no goalie inside. And uh, two times Suarez kicks the ball out. He was playing, he's a forward, he was playing as a defender. So, the second time the ball goes in, he has a handball. He takes a hand, he uses his hand and takes the ball out. He was red carded immediately. Because that's a rule. The rules of the game don't say that if you touch the ball with your hand, then that's a goal. No, it doesn't say that. It says that it's a penalty and the person who touched the ball with his hand has a red card and he's ejected from the game, which means he couldn't play in the semifinal. Now, if Ghana has scored that goal, Ghana would have gone to the semifinal and Uruguay would have been eliminated, kicked out of the World Cup. But they missed it. They missed it. So we went to penalties and they missed two more penalties and we won. Okay? So for that alone, what people say, oh, he's a cheater. He's not a cheater. He did what a lot of players throughout history have done. He took advantage of the rules in order to save the team from certain defeat and before and after that game he scored a lot of goals for a and we love him and we know because also he has some insight he did make some mistakes he beat three people in his career okay <laughs> and he was punished for it <coughs> he was punished for it and uh but then he was accused of being a racist because he has an um, incident with Patrice Abra uh, from Manchester United when he was playing in England. Nobody heard it. Patrice Bra's teammates didn't hear him say anything racist. The referee didn't hear it. And the year didn't hear it. Okay. So, and we know Luis Suarez and, you know, that's a non-issue for us. For us, he's a hero. So, And also, you as a comedian should joke about like Dracula or Luis Suarez's fan because that's not your work is original, but that thing is not original, (laughs) you know. And that's not because of Suarez. Forget about Suarez, but it's like um, it's like saying that. Well, I don't even want to mention the previous president, but uh, but it was like like. Trying to insult him, the previous president, using the word "orange" and some something else. You know that's not original. So you can do better than that. So that's it. You know, and uh, he's a great guy, and and he he's he's he represents. He's the personification of the Uruguayan spirit. You know, win or lose, Luis Suarez. never wants to leave he has played when he's injured and and running for 90 minutes and scoring a lot of goals you know he's a hero he's untouchable so all glories to Luis Suarez Luis Suarez key jai
0: okay there you go well we've learned a lot tonight we've learned why why you shouldn't laugh about Luis Suarez biting people around Uruguayans we learned about Llama poop and uh, that llamas poop a lot. We learned about India and um, about your career as a journalist. And it's been a blast.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So you can find the book in Amazon or um, uh, Barnes and Noble. And I hope you like it. You know, there's some interest in that there's So it's about music, there's sports, there's film. A little bit of politics, and um, I hope you like it. Thank you very much for your time, and I'm a big fan of your work, also. And I'm looking forward to your January. um, To your well, you're gonna have to edit this part. (laughs) I blew it. Can you edit? I'll. I'll, Well, thank. Let me do it again. Okay. (laughs) Okay, do it again. (laughs) I, I blew it. I blew it
0: that's okay we'll never take a picture together it's fine go ahead
1: no. <clears throat> well thank you very much i'm a big fan of your work and uh, again you know anytime let me know whenever you have a show i'll buy it and I'll see it with my whole family here all four of us and we always enjoy your stuff
0: thank you appreciate it